Welcome to Food Friday Leftovers, a podcast about all the goodies left over from Food Friday. I'm Dave Hopper. And I'm Ashley Kinsey. Tune in each week as we cover culinary topics such as food trucks, local food, pizza, veggies, beer, and wine. You hungry yet? Huh, I'm always hungry. Well, on that note, Ashley, tell us what's in the fridge this week. Oh, looks like we got some pickles. We're talking with Rob Handel of Bee's Knees Cafe and Heather Ridge Farm. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You enjoy your Vox Pop episode? Yes, I did. It was great. Yeah, lots of great questions about all things fermented. You never know what questions are going to come in. Oh, I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the first time I was on uh, about a year ago, I was supposed to be talking about pork, and somebody <laughs> yeah. called in asking me uh, how to build a rabbit tractor, which is like a portable <laughs> rabbit cage. So, Oh. <laughs> My first question has to do with... Um, Pickling things that are previously frozen. Is that something you can actually do, or does it always have to be a fresh produce or fresh Um, item? It's not ideal to pickle something that's been frozen because uh, what happens when you freeze something, all of the water in those vegetable cells freezes, and when water freezes, it expands, and it actually ruptures the cells. So when you thaw you know, your frozen broccoli, you'll notice that it's softer than the fresh broccoli was. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of already going into the process with this softer product, and uh, you won't get really nice crisp pickles the way you do with fresh vegetables. So I, I try to use all fresh. So then this is the ideal season to sort of harvest your veggies and get everything going. And Yeah, well, you know... Um, the season runs from like July up until now. Um, a lot of the, you know, most of the farms don't have cucumbers anymore and a lot of those warm weather crops, but there's still plenty of um, coal crops, they call them. So things like cauliflower, you can make great pickled cauliflower. Um, the carrots right now are particularly sweet. Um, this time of the year is actually better for some of those crops because a lot of them, when the weather gets cold, one way that they protect themselves from the cold is they concentrate the sugars, and that acts as a natural kind of antifreeze. So Mm. the carrots are sweeter now than they were before we had this cold weather. Um, So I'm still pickling carrots and cauliflower. Uh, There's tons of cabbage that you can make great sauerkraut with, so that kind of thing. Yeah, that's something that makes me remember something that my grandmother used to say. She grows collard greens and she always says after the first frost they're better you know so she tries to wait and before she you know cuts everything off yeah that's true for most of the cold weather things you know brussels sprouts uh broccoli collard greens kale swiss chard um they're all a lot better after the first frost Mm -hmm. so can you tell us what we're drinking here sure so uh i have three different kinds of um alcohol-based uh ferments and when people hear the word fermented, they kind of jump to thinking of something like beer or wine. Right. And uh, there's really a broad range of fermentation, everything from alcohol to um, miso or soy sauces fermented, breads, cheeses, yogurt, all sorts of different things. But this is the, what people think of most commonly. So uh, the first one you should try is what we're calling a black cap lambic. So a lambic is a Belgian-style beer, and it's usually fermented with natural wild yeasts. So along with those wild yeasts, you get some other microbes that create kind of a sour tart note. So uh, the wild yeast in this beer came from the wild black cap raspberries that I picked and added to the beer to introduce the yeast and the other things. So it's a little fruity, but you have that kind of tart. Um, yeah. It's really a more of a warm weather drink than right now. So do you start the process and then add the berries? Yeah. So um, 
it's not really a true beer in the sense that there's no grain in there. Mm -hmm. um, it's made all with wild herbs that I forage. And when you ferment the herbs, they end up tasting like beer. So you uh, more or less make a tea that you add sugar to as a source for the yeast to ferment. And uh, the herbs in here include um, yarrow, artemisia, which is also called mugwort because it was traditionally used for brewing beer. Now um, we're getting into Harry Potter. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's some St. John's wort in there, things like that. And uh, I make the tea, pour the tea into the container, and then once it cools down, I add the berries. And you don't want to add the berries when it's hot because then you'll kill all of the yeast that's on the yeah. berries. Um, and I just add the berries whole. And uh, there's yeast growing on the outside of them, and that's enough to get the whole thing going. And so you don't want to use any of those, um, you know, in the grocery stores now they sell these cleaners for your produce to... Oh, yeah. Get rid of all them. the stuff on the outside. Yeah. yeah no. So well, then you wouldn't want to use something like that on your berries before you try doing something that, like no, this at no. home. And I mean, I, I would never use those cleaners on any produce anytime because, you know, I, I don't see any reason to put poor chemicals over your produce to clean mm -hmm. them. But no, it, I specifically didn't wash these. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the advantages that I had was that I picked the berries. So yeah. I was able to get clean berries. They weren't by a roadside where they got dusty or something um, and kind of track that whole process. But uh, if you washed them, yeah, you'd wash off a lot of that yeast and then yeah, then it doesn't And work. then you'd have a moldy science project. <laughs> exactly. Instead of this delicious Which sometimes happens, having. but... Uh, <laughs> You don't know the alcohol content, I believe you said on Vox Pop, right? I, I don't know the alcohol content on these. Um, there's a way to measure it where you're using a, a tool called a hydrometer. I didn't take accurate recordings on these. Uh, what ends up happening is that I'm so busy in the summer and I'm trying to cram as much in as possible that sometimes those little steps get left behind. <laughs> we all need a mystery every once in a while, you know? <laughs> not everything needs thing, you to know, be measured. And... I, we're not, we're, we don't serve this at Heather Ridge, of course. There's uh, liquor laws and things right. that prohibit that. Um, so a lot of this I make for my home consumption or I'm using it as an ingredient. You know, mm -hmm. I may... Uh, add some of that to a sauce or, um, you know, marinate something in it. So it's not being used as alcohol. And uh, right. because of that, it's less important for me to know the exact percentage. How much do you make of it? Um, it, it really depends. I do. Uh, there's two different processes. You know, one is kind of the uh, the pilot project where I'm trying to figure this stuff out. And the downside to using all of this forage stuff is that the season is so short and the process takes uh, several weeks to several months. So usually by the time the product is finished and you know if it's good or not, it's, it's too, too late. late to go back and make more. So I do one-gallon test batches, and then the next year, if a project went well the year before, might make five gallons, ten gallons, or more. So it really depends. Most of them I make you know, five gallons, eight gallons, something like that. And uh, when it's done, then I just have to wait until next year. How long would five gallons last you, like, if you wanted to drink it? Um, it a weekend? It depends. It depends on, uh, <laughs> it depends on how stressful <laughs> things are on the farm. <laughs> You'd have to drink five gallons because I can tell by the way it tastes, it's not, you know, heavy with alcohol. It, yeah, yeah. You know, if, there, if yeah, it's, it's that nice. stressful, you'd have to just <laughs> drink the whole thing. So what's the second one? Uh, the second one is a cherry mead. Um, so sounds, I remember, I don't know if it was an old computer game or something from like Robin Hood maybe, where I first heard of mead, where you had to drink it. I is think it really I remember what from, you're talking about. Yeah, yes. Sierra Games. It's It was a drink from a while ago, right? 
Yeah, um, well, it's actually, uh, historians speculate that mead might have been the first alcoholic beverage consumed by mankind. And uh, the reason for that is that it's the simplest to make. You know, with the grapes, you have to pick the grapes, you have to crush them, get the juice, all this. Uh, beer is much more complicated with boiling and malting the grain. And uh, mead, kind of the, the running theory with mead was that somebody left a jar of honey out in the open and it got some water in it and it spontaneously fermented and that's how they got mead. So um, And everyone was happy. And everyone was happy. <laughs> and, you know, that's where the term honeymoon comes from was that one part of the traditional dowry was that the bride's father would give the couple enough mead to last them for a month. So <laughs> oh. the moon runs, it runs in monthly cycles, and that was the honeymoon. When did this end? I know, right? It's, <laughs> it's a lovely tradition. <laughs> well, way too early. That's when that ended. This is good, though. So normally I remember Ray said they're way too sweet. Yeah, and I think part of it is uh, Americans uh, don't drink a lot of mead. So a lot of American consumers, I think that the producers are thinking – Americans that want to try mead want to taste honey, and tasting honey means that it's sweet. But yeah. that's not really the case if you're um, if you're drinking more of a traditional honey. dry mead. Yeah. No, I like this a lot. Mm-hmm. And so you said this one was the easiest to make. Can you just run through? I think you touched on it in the Vox Pop episode, but can you just run through? You know, somebody wants to try to attempt to throw this together. Sure. Um, one of the things that's nice about it is you do heat it up, so you don't have to worry about sterilizing, um, adding chemicals to knock out any wild yeast there. So uh, the basic procedure is um, there's recipes online for the quantities, but you would mix the honey and the water. You would heat it up till just below a boil, um, pour it into a glass container. They make kind of larger containers called carboys and smaller gallon-sized containers called demijohns. Uh, that's the terminology. And then um, you cap it and you let it cool. And that sterilizes and kind of pasteurizes that whole jar. And then once it's cooled, you would add um, yeast to it. And you can buy yeast that's designed for making mead um, or different wines or ales or that kind of thing. And uh, you just pour the yeast in. It kind of floats on top and then dissolves once it rehydrates. And you put this device called an airlock on top. And the airlock is just a plastic tube with an S shape in it. And you put water in there, and that allows any carbon dioxide that the yeast makes to come out so it doesn't explode, but it keeps bacteria and stuff from getting in. And anywhere from, you know, a couple weeks to a month or so later, uh, it's ready to be bottled, and then you can store it, um, age it, and enjoy it when you'd like. How do you know when it's ready to be bottled? Well, uh, you know, kind of the, the beginner kind of folksy method is to wait until you stop uh, seeing the airlock bubbling and when it stops bubbling it means the yeast isn't active anymore there are cases in which the yeast can stop for a little while and then suddenly kick up and you don't really want it in the bottle because the bottle will explode um, so <laughs> what you can good. do is there's a tool called a hydrometer and it's just this little glass vial with markings on it and it measures the density of the water which is called specific gravity and uh, the more sugar is in there the more dense it is as that sugar gets turned into alcohol the density drops so you can actually and there's you know instructions online for this kind of thing you can actually take a reading at the beginning and then take a later reading and determine how much sugar is left in there by doing a couple calculations okay so it's not like taste tests or anything no the taste tests are unreliable (laughs) i mean it's a good start if it tastes really sweet there's obviously still honey in there so then my next question has to do with water kefir is it true that you can reuse the grains over and over and over oh, again? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
So you um, can essentially just like buy the grains once and continue. That's exactly the idea. And the beauty of it is um, not only can you reuse the grains, uh, for those who aren't familiar with water kefir, it's basically um, kind of like a probiotic soda. It's not as strongly flavored as something like kombucha, where it's really sour. Um, it kind of has a very mellow tartness to it, and it's fizzy. And you make it using what they call water kefir grains. And they're like these little uh, clear kind of jelly, clear to translucent jelly-looking uh, pebbles. And what they are is they're actually a colony of bacteria and yeast, and the bacteria creates that structure for them to live in. Hmm. Um, and the nice thing is not only can you reuse those grains, but they actually multiply. So once you have your water kefir grains, you can share them with other people. And uh, they multiply really fast, actually, if you get a, a pretty vibrant batch. Yeah, I did some reading about that, and I just thought it was so interesting. But then I thought, well... If it's similar to if you're fermenting it, like you would ferment other things with yeast, um, you can't reuse the yeast, you know, so I wasn't really sure if well, that was a you myth. Well, really, you can actually, believe it or not. Oh. Um, something like these things that I brought in today where I fermented them, but I didn't, um, I didn't pasteurize them, I didn't add sulfites to kill the yeast in there. They are uh, probiotic in the sense that the yeast is still active in that. And you can do something, uh, the name is kind of unattractive, but it's called backslopping. Oh. <laughs> where, <laughs> where you take some of the, you know, I might take some of that mead and add it to a fresh batch of mead to introduce the yeast. So you actually can develop your own yeast starters. Oh. There's a forager that I know on the West Coast who creates yeast starters out of all sorts of different things. And if you keep feeding them, you can do it that way. You know, usually it's kind of cheaper and easier to just add fresh yeast as you go but something like the water kefir grains where they're not as commonly available mm -hmm. um that's the right way to do it so you just mentioned a forager on the west coast i'm just wondering because obviously it's different wherever you are yeah it's such a local thing is there like a special place for that like on different coasts like oh you have this over there you have this over here um well you know yeah uh the guy that I mentioned wrote a really great book that came out last spring, and I've been getting tons of ideas from it. And it's one of these things where, you know, 90% of what he has over there is different than what yeah. we have over here. Mm. And there's some things that are kind of similar. They're in the same family, but the flavors are different. And you really kind of have to approach, you know, especially with the foraging and with the fermenting, you really have to approach it as uh, looking at the broader picture, not trying to narrow down in an exact recipe where you can get all the exact ingredients, but try to pare all of that away and look at what's the concept here. Yeah. You know, um, they have something called pinion pine over there, which is a certain type of pine that's really tasty. Uh, we don't have that over here. But we have other evergreens. You know, I use different kinds of spruce tips or um, hemlock tips. You know, hemlock the tree, not the mm -hmm. poisonous water hemlock. <laughs> uh, people are always worried about that. But uh, different things grow in different parts of the country. And if you're trying to get into this and create your own recipes and your own ideas, you really have to try to look at what the core idea is. You know, you're adding this kind of tart, citrusy pine note. And whether it's coming from one species of pine or another, the concept is applicable to a broad range of applications. Is there any stuff you can bring back? Like if you go over there, are you looking for any specific plant or anything? Or is it like, would it be not worth bringing back? Um, no, there's, uh, there's certainly things that would be good to bring back. Um, if I were to go over to the West Coast and bring stuff back, I would be looking to bring back things that could be preserved so that 
you know, I could bring back a ton of it. Right. Um, something like the sage, you know, uh, all across the West Coast and into the Southwest and Midwest, they have this great uh, sage brush and white sage. And that's something that dries really well and you get this great flavor from it. There's a California coffee berry that looks and allegedly tastes a little bit like coffee if you roast it. I might bring some of those back uh, after drying them. Um, different mushrooms that dry really well. So, yeah. Interesting. So you mentioned you had a good funny story. Yeah, I do. Th- this time I have a great funny story. Um, <laughs> so now at Heather Ridge, we're selling a root beer concentrate. And it's a recipe that I developed a couple years ago. And it's made with all, you know, whole, real roots and barks and herbs and spices. There's like 15 different botanicals in it. And when I was developing this recipe, I kind of finally tuned everything in. And I was doing it in the winter because it was a really cold, miserable winter. And it's a great excuse to, you know, warm up the kitchen with a big pot of boiling Mm -hmm. root beer on the stove. Mm -hmm. And um, what we do now, what I was doing then was I would make a syrup and then add it to seltzer. But I decided for something extra special for my family, I was going to make a fermented soda for Christmas. So it wasn't alcoholic. The whole idea was that the yeast was just naturally carbonating the soda. So I made up all this soda and I put it in these nice, pretty, fancy bottles. And, um, you know, you have to leave it out at room temperature to make the yeast active. But then you have to chill it before you open it up so it stays carbonated. And I'd gotten it to the right point and... Uh, You have to, every couple days, you have to open up the cap to release some pressure so that it doesn't explode. So Christmas came, and I tried to seriously explain this to my family that, you know, you have to (laughs) take it home, put it right in the refrigerator, don't shake it up a lot. You know, if you're not going to drink it soon, open up the cap, all this stuff. And they all laughed at me and teased me and ignored me because I was trying to be serious. And, you know, they don't. Mm -hmm. um, So nobody listened to me. And I think my mother was the only person who listened. Everybody else took their bottles of root beer home and put it on the counter and came home to root beer all over the kitchen and shards oh, of broken glass everywhere. Oh, no. And, you know, they're, now they're reluctant to ever accept a gift from me ever again. <laughs> but uh, that's, well, that's one my, way to get out of giving That's kind gifts. of my funny fermenting story is that there are perils to fermentation. <laughs> Listen to the instructions. Yes. Yes. And the little golden nugget in that is... Put it in the fridge. <laughs> put it in the fridge. When in doubt, put it in the fridge. <laughs> well, Rob, thanks for coming on again. Oh, thanks for having me. That was Rob Handel of Bees Knees Cafe and Heather Ridge Farm. This has been Food Friday Leftovers. I'm Ashley Kinsey. And I'm Dave Hopper. Be sure to check out Vox Pop Food Friday every Friday at 2 p.m. on WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our producer is Jessica Blaustein Marshall. Our theme is Beach Disco by Dougie Wood. Food Friday Leftovers is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. And tune in next week to see what else we find in the fridge. <laughs>